this is the reality as human beings, right? We will get sick. And the fact that we, are li that we live in a country in where we are worried whether we will get sick, not because of our health, but because we worry that we won't be able to afford whatever strikes us. This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by State Senator Gustavo Rivera, State Senator for the 33rd Senate District here in New York. Uh, Senator Rivera is the chairman of the Committee on Health in the New York State Senate. So if there is going to be any type of health care reform in New York State, this is the man who's going to be leading the charge in the state Senate. You'll find that he is a high energy, lot of fun interview. This conversation is wide ranging. We cover his favorite topics like healthcare, uh, like rent reform, what they were working on uh, during the budget season, even talking about video games and his favorite uh, hot sauces. So this is a very fun, very high energy interview. We hope you will enjoy it. Feel free to reach out to us on social media at Malen Politics. Let us know what you think. I recorded this interview several weeks ago, so some things may have changed by the time you hear it. But without further ado, I will let Senator Gustavo Rivera introduce himself. So my name is Gustavo Rivera. I'm state senator for the 33rd district in the Bronx. I represent uh, about 318,000 people in the Northwest Bronx. Wow. Neighborhoods, yeah, man, that's how big these things are. Uh, so the neighborhoods of Kingsbridge Heights, University Heights, Fordham, Belmont, Little Italy. Um, the zoo is part of my district. It goes all the way down south to, uh, to 168th and Webster, and it goes as far east as Van Nest and Morris Park to the other side of the zoo. So it is a diverse district, just so that you get a sense of the how weird it is. I have enough, we, as far as uh, community boards, familiar with community boards. Sure. You know, it's like the most local way of uh, representation in the city of New York. And I have chunks of community boards, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 11. Wow. So it is very diverse. So that's the district I represent. That's awesome. And you took office in 2011, is that correct? Took office in 2011, elected in 2010, defeated a guy who then served six years in federal prison for stealing public money, hmm. who himself replaced someone who went to jail for violating the public trust. It seems to be that there is a fair By the amount way, I'm of- sorry to interrupt. That guy also replaced somebody who went to prison. So I just want to put that in the record. The three people before me all went to jail for violating the public trust. <laughs> I just wanted to give you the full context. Now, I'm not sure. I want to say something like, uh, sounds like this seat Make is, uh, Go ahead. you know, has... has I've, uh, heard, I've heard all of them. Oh, when are you going to prison? Or when you're doing this? Or it's like, how long have you... How long is it going to be before you get caught in something? And it's like, I, I love those questions because I can put them in context. I, I can... It, it's a terrible thing to, uh, to assume. But the reason why it's important to, to underline is because it actually tells you a little bit of how I got here. Because right. for me... I, I started very briefly. I came here to do a PhD in political science in 98, right? And I thought that I was going to be an academic. I liked politics, but as an academic pursuit. A friend of mine ran for city council in 2000. He was part of my, he was a graduate student along with me. And because 
I was like, I guess I'll help you because he was my friend. And we started to do the work. And so we involved ourselves in campaigns very, very early on. And it was, and it was the, the thing that actually made me realize that I wanted to be an operative. I wanted to be someone who learned how to get other people in office. And that's what I intended to do. But in 2009... Uh, the guy that I replaced by the name of Pedro Espada, you might want to Google him, ESPADA, this guy, uh, excuse me, was one of the people who led a coup to flip the Senate back to the Republicans. There's another podcast, uh, Capital Confidential, right now, is doing a series which is called Tales from the Coup. So if you want to know the backstory to that craziness in 2009, that will tell you all those stories. But the point is that the guy who did that, the guy who was one of the people who, who made that happen, this guy was supposed to represent people who are such in need right here in the backyard. Then he did this, and he was a scumbag. Everybody knew it. And I was like, I got, I got to do something. So my first instinct was to find somebody else to run against him. When I didn't, in um, March, April of 2010, I said, I got to do it myself because these people that are running against him are good people, but they can't beat him. And like you said, you had had that experience of working on campaigns. Maybe can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background working for then Senator Obama and yeah. Senator Kristen Gillibrand? So after, so after, so I came here originally to do a PhD in political science. Thought I was going to be an academic. My friend ran for city council in 2000, uh, and that kind of, you know, everything else kind of went from there. So yeah. I was involved in local races, state senate races, state assembly races. Um, did work for, uh, ran the campaign for uh, Melissa Marquiverito when sure. she won. Uh, I was part of the, uh, I was part of the presidential campaign, the Obama campaign. I did, I was uh, SEIU for Obama before, during the primary, I went to... SEIU is a big union. Yes, SEIU Service Employees International Union. They were helping Obama during the primary. They endorsed him early. And so I traveled around the country to get him to win the primary. And then when he won the primary, I went to Florida to be one of the state directors down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand when I when uh, after Obama won. Uh, and I had worked, by the way, as a Senate Democratic staffer before I was a senator in working in a bunch of the races to flip the Senate before 2008 and nine. So, I, so I've been working as an operative for a very long time. And and my and my instinct was to do that to be an operative. But the bottom line is, in 2010, I had to make the choice. This guy was such a bastard. Really, it needed he needed to go away because he was disrespecting the people of this of this state and of, and the people of this district. And somebody needed to take him out. And I knew that I could do that because I had been obsessing about the race ever since he led the coup. And that story isn't so dissimilar from other great candidates turned politicians that we think back even to, you know, this last New York election with the anti-IDC group. So many people stood up and said, this just cannot stand. I need to be the one to do it. Exactly. When I ran in 2010, and I realized, again, because I've been obsessing about the race forever, when I realized that it had to be me, for example, I went to the county organization, the Bronx County organization, not to ask for permission to run, but to tell them I was running. Yeah. And it needed to happen. They were dis- they dissuaded me because, you know, oh, well, he's got this money, he's popular, blah, blah, blah. That was like, the guy needs to go and I'm going to take him out. And I just built the, the whole campaign because uh, I had been thinking about it for so long. And I definitely worked my ass off to be able to do it, but... But it was the it was the type of thing. It's it's the reason why I do correct people. I say I'm not a politician. I'm a public servant. Yeah, and I make that distinction between the guy who was there before me, who again went to federal prison after I defeated him, mm-hmm. um, and and the guy that I want to be, the guy that I want that I have been for the last nine years. And I would and I would assure you, certainly all the people that beat the IDC members, 
All of them are public servants. I serve with them now, and they're fantastic people, all of them. So let's talk about the guy that you are now and the guy that you want to want to be. You're the chair of the Health Committee in the Senate? Indeed. I've been, I was, uh, so I've been in the Senate. This is my ninth year. I spent six of those years as a ranking member, say the vice president, if you will, sure. of the Health Committee in the Senate. And because the Democrats were in the minority. Correct. Between, I had eight years in the minority, um, and it was incredibly frustrating. Something I say constantly is if you're a member of the minority in the state legislature and you don't care, it is the sweetest job in the universe because you get an honorable for your name, you get a parking placard, everybody calls you senator. It's great, but if you care, yeah, you're not doing if anything. If you don't care, you don't. You're not responsible for anything. It's fine, but if you care, it is incredibly frustrating, which is what it was for me for eight years. But now it's my fifth month being the chair of the health committee, and just so that people get a sense, we just passed a budget that was 175.5 billion dollars, over 70 billion with a B of that was it's a either massive Medicaid budget. Or public health related so my job is really to was really in this concert to lead the conversation for my colleagues who all who the, the leader appointed us as a work group to deal with the budget to really kind of go line by line in the budget and respond to it as a Senate Democratic conference and a majority conference and then use that as our position to negotiate with the governor for the final budget I'd never gotten to do that being at that table I was glad that I had eight years. Maybe it was a frustration, but it was a preparation because mm. I want because this is it's too important to mess up. Yep. Yeah. And when we think about kind of the future of healthcare, mm -hmm. this is the topic that is on voters' minds. When Absolutely. you look back at uh, the polls and even the exit polls and issue polls, uh, healthcare was the number one uh, issue on the minds of voters at the federal level, state level, local level. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's going on at the New York state level in, in addition to what happened in the budget? So for me, this, this is the reason why it was the number one thing in all these people's minds is because this is the reality as human beings, right? We will get sick. And the fact that we, are, that we live in a country in where we are worried whether we will get sick, not because of our health, but because we worry that we won't be able to afford whatever strikes us, even some, you know, maybe even literally if you get struck by a car when you go outside you know right. that type of thing you're worried about it. it's like that should not be a concern so i think one of the most important things that i've been committed to making sure that everybody is covered and i know that i've been fighting there's a bill that i've introduced that i've carried for the last couple of years called the new york health act which would create a single-payer system in the state of new york now i believe that having a national solution would be best but considering the abomination in the White House, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So we have not only a responsibility and an obligation, but because of the makeup of our state, we can actually do it in the state in ways that other states cannot. So my goal, along with my colleague in the Assembly, is to do just that, to create a system which is a single-payer system and actually addresses whether that, that your wealth should not determine your health. And we have seen throughout history ideas that get trialed at the state level then become law at the federal level. All you have to look no further than Obamacare started as Romney Care in Massachusetts, nice. or uh, I believe CHIP also started at the state level That's and then right. became uh, a federal law. So looking at New York State, we could lead on this issue and we could prove it to be successful and provide a roadmap for the rest of the country. Is that how you look at it? Bingo. You, you, you put your finger right on it. We know, when I say we, folks, the, the, the advocates that are pushing for this, and certainly my colleague in the Assembly, Dick Godfrey, we realize that this would be a fundamental re 
design of the way that healthcare is de delivered in the state of New York, and because it is a state of New York, would would present a model for the rest of the country, states from everywhere on you know from from the east to west, and also for the country. So we want to make sure that we get it right. We can lead in the state. We must lead in the state, and it is incredibly difficult, both technically and politically, to achieve. But it's a it's a battle worth fighting, and I'm and I'm I'm glad that I'm in the middle of it, and and I've only had five months really as a chairman yep. to really kind of get my 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 arms around it, but but we I believe that we're making progress. So I want to talk a little bit about what the critics say because it mm -hmm. seems to have slowed down. There was a lot of momentum when uh, the new Senate came in. There was a Democratic trifecta. Um, even nationally, there was a huge push for single payer, Medicare for all, public option, whatever it is, universal health care seems to be the goal. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that in theory. And I agree with and I agree with that as far as a value statement that yeah. you should be, you know, you you shouldn't go broke if you get sick. Like That's that, correct. that, that basic premise, Whoa. I think resonates with so many Americans. Yeah. Yeah. However, the critics of the New York Health Act will yes. say that it's too much money oh for taxes. Too much money, too much. You will lose jobs in the healthcare industry. Um, I don't know. You probably know the criticisms better than me. How do you respond to those? First of all, there's a difference between criticisms that are made in good faith and criticisms that are just because we're trying to destroy your business model. Mm. Let's be clear. Insurance companies are criticizing it and are resisting it and are ready to fight it with all of their might because we're trying to destroy their business model. The idea that your business model is based on not on the idea of providing care, but the idea of limiting care so that you have to pay for less of it means you get to keep more of it. That is a problem. We wanna get rid of that. That should not be the way that you determine your health. That, that should not determine whether you are healthy or not. So there's, a, there's, that, so there's people who in good faith, those people are not criticizing us or engaging us in good faith. There's a lot of other folks who do have concerns because Again, this is a fundamental redesign. This is a different way of doing things. I've had many people looking at me saying like, but should, could this actually work? The answer is yes. Now, let's talk about cost. You are correct. This is an expensive proposition. But you know what is an expensive proposition? Even more so, the current system that we have. If you take, if you add up, just math-wise, if you add up how much is spent on Medicare and Medicaid in the state, and then you add up everything that is spent buy people out of pocket for premiums, for out of pocket costs, for co-pays, for out of network charges, etc. You add all that up, guess what? You get to the $160 billion number that's been thrown around by the critics. So I'm saying the system is already that expensive. The idea is that we're going to refocus where the money comes from and how it is spent. The only thing that the state is going to do, because this is another criticism, state controlled healthcare. That's not what this would be. The only thing that the state would do is pay for the bills. The decisions, the medical decisions are made by the doctor and the patient of what is medically necessary. And that is what is going to be paid for. The state has to have an administrative, has to do grow an administrative part, much like what happens in Medicare. So like Medicare is run and Medicaid is run in the state of New York, it would be state entity who actually pays the bills. But they would not, as a private insurance company, be making all sorts of decisions about what is in network, out of network, and this, all of that would go away. So we want to actually, yes, there are taxes involved. Oh my God, there is taxes involved. But I'll tell you what, if you're to, right to, yesterday we went, I was at a, at a forum in which a lady was telling us about the fact that she, as a self-employed person who discovered she had breast cancer, she was in her late 40s, 
fairly healthy, all of a sudden discovers she has breast cancer as a self-employed person. She is playing, she's paying $1,100 a month for her health insurance. There's also a $4,000 copay that she has to hit before the actual insurance world kicks in. Like a deductible, yeah. That's like like 11000 almost $16,000 a month, a, a year. A year. Just to have that, and that is not including the drugs that she has to get and the copays that she has to have for the drugs or the copays that she has to have for physical therapy or other types of therapy that she has that, that come along with the fact that she has breast cancer and might die because of it. We want to create a system in which the entire year as a self-employed person, let's say she makes $50,000 a year, her entire bill would be about 3600 bucks for the year. You're like, really? How is that possible? Well, I'm 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 reacting because people will say, well, you're just going to tax the the wealthy and they're going to leave the state. How do you how do you handle that kind of flee put the, the fear of fleeing? The fear of fleeing. That's that's very elusive of you. Very I know, nice. I just very, came up with it. Very nice. The fear <laughs> of fleeing. The fact is that when we have done things like this, there's plenty of there there's there's plenty of folks that are putting in scare tactics saying that number one, you're going to have people who are going to move into the state because, and they're just going to try to be a freeloaders and they're just going to move in to get the service without actually paying into the system. And that pe- and that wealthy people are going to run away. There's plenty of evidence. First of all, we're not going to, to break anybody's pocket. Excuse me, we're not going to break everybody's bank. We are going to tax people more based on ability to pay. But if we share the cost along the 20 million people in the state of New York, that's actually, you will pay, 95% of New Yorkers will pay less than what they are paying now for a better program, for a better product. Now, will some wealthy people have to pay a little bit more than they pay for healthcare? Maybe, but in most instances, they won't. Because in most instances, they actually get the, get payment, get their healthcare from their employer, right? Even people that make $200,000, $300,000 a year, get healthcare from their employer, their employer. Their employer will pay less than what they're paying now to provide healthcare for their employees. And again, it would be a better product. So it, there is, the, when you're talking about 20 million people being included in the pool, being able to negotiate on behalf of the entire state for drugs with drug companies, 20 million people, you can probably get a good deal. Providing primary care, very essential. There's people who use, who are not insured right now, guess what, they still get sick. Where do they wind up? They go to the emergency room. Correct, and the most expensive care is emergency care. Right. So how about providing, what about people that have asthma or people who are diabetic? Discovering chronic conditions earlier means that they will not only lead healthy lives, but they will be less expensive to the system. Ultimately, if people wanna argue that the current system is wonderful, like first of all, I'd have what I'll have what they're having. Okay? Right. I, mean, for them, I guess that for them, the marijuana is already legal. Right. They're having some really good stuff that they're putting into their system. The current system is bizarre. It is crazy, and it is in unjust. It is completely unjust. Yeah. So, if we say we want to fix the current system, then give me a better option than the one that I'm presenting, and we haven't seen one. So, do you think it has a chance? Do you think it has a chance to pass and become law? Yes. We have we have a democratic assembly, a democratic senate, a democratic governor. Why isn't it law? First of all, yes. The answer to your question is yes. Is there something? But we have to build momentum because the reality is that up to this year, and I'll remind you and your listeners, when we're de- when we're recording this, it is our fifth month in the majority. Yeah. When the Senate Republicans controlled the Senate, and certainly for the last eight, ten years, right? So for the fifth month in the majority. 
And you had a backlog of progressive legislation. You had to pass a budget. I'm going to get to that. Okay. Because the reality is, this is the key. For many years, this bill was always going to pass in the Assembly and was never going to pass in the Senate. Right. And so the people who are resistant or hate the idea, they basically tell themselves, like, don't worry about it. It'll pass in the Assembly. People will shake their fists and say how important this is. And then the Senate won't touch it, so don't worry about it. The reality is that people who both in good faith and bad want to engage with us on this bill didn't really do it before January because they didn't have to. It was never going to pass in the Senate. So my job and the job of all the advocates and many of my colleagues who are supportive of this is to gain momentum to make it so it's a political necessity to do. And And it is hard work, my dude. It is hard work. But that's fine. That's what I got into this for. When I introduced the bill earlier, a couple of months ago, we had 24 sponsors in the original print, right? We had 24 people who immediately did it. Right now we have 30 sponsors and we continue to build. We're engaging, I'm certainly engaging with some of my Senate colleagues on the things that are important to them. If they have legitimate concerns, and many of them, probably all of them do, then I want to address those concerns. I've been able to do so for six more of my colleagues and I'm continuing to work on the rest. So I've been playing a little bit of devil's advocate, but I support it. Um, I, I was gonna, I, I was gonna ask. Right. I was gonna ask. We were like, we were like over there was like, I just, I have a side gig with an insurance company, and I don't know. So, <laughs> so I really got, I got, I got a crap on you on this one. No, I no, I, no, I, I wanted to hear your argument, and I think it's very compelling, and I think you're, you're doing it for the right reason. So thank yeah. you, thank you for your work there. Yeah, and and, it, um, and it's, but bottom line, dude, it is an uphill battle. I'm not gonna deny that. This it is. is changing. Yeah. This is fundamentally changing the way that everybody believes that it needs to work. You know that lady that said had the. The, the breast cancer mm-hmm. she said to the room she said like I actually have a pretty good plan and it's like I'm actually lucky this right. is what she said I have a pretty good plan I'm actually lucky and I said to her that is both because a couple people kind of chuckled and I said that is both funny and tragic because it is correct you have a pretty good plan but isn't it just disgusting that your pretty good plan quote unquote means you have to pay out of your pocket to to figure out if you're going to be alive or not. And you're self-employed. So if you can't actually do the work that you do on a daily basis, then you can't... I mean, this is... It just it boggles the mind. But it is incredibly difficult to do. The interests that we're fighting against are fighting against the tooth and nail. That's cool. Got no problem. I know who I'm fighting for. These folk out here. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to continue doing the fight. And it's going to be an uphill battle, but I believe we can get it. So... We've spent a lot of time on healthcare, mm-hmm. but that's not the only issue. You no, have not. you have a whole lot of other priorities. Yes, yeah. um, housing, housing, housing. So that's certainly that's important to discuss. So I have in my district. Yeah, I represent three hundred eighteen thousand people, and I have about seventy thousand units of rent stabilized apartments in my district. It is the second largest such number in any Senate district in the state. The first one is Robert Jackson. He has about seventy two thousand. He is a uh, representing the 31st senatorial district across the river. I'm pointing towards towards Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So he's over in Washington Heights, Inwood, Dykeman, and a little bit of North Harlem. So he has about 72,000 units. Me in the Bronx, I have about 70. So, and every single day, if you were to, if you were to just sit by the door and just chill in front of my office for a couple of hours on a normal business day, you would see a dozen people coming in telling us basically the same story. I don't have enough money to stay in my apartment. My landlord is trying to kick me out. How can I find a place that's affordable? I'm a senior, I live in a three bedroom, I only need one, can you find me one? All that is happening right here 
right out there in my district. So housing and the and the effort that we're making this year, which will, we will be successful, we will be successful in strengthening rent laws. The parameters, like how far we can go, that's the question. What does that mean to strengthen the rent laws? So the rent laws are expiring, I think it's June 15th. So and, and, and you can really, you have the opportunity to totally radically redesign the rent laws. So yeah, talk a little bit about yeah. what you're what you're looking to do. So we're talking about the rent laws. We're talking specifically about rent stabilized and rent control departments, but rent control is a very, very small population. Yeah. We're talking about rent stabilization. The fact is that there is a shortage of, of affordable housing in the state of New York. And one of the ways that we keep housing affordable, at least, you know, you know, marginally affordable is by having a system called rent stabilization, which means that uh, that every time that you if you live in a rent stabilized if you live in a market rate apartment, you sign a lease, and when the lease is up, the landlord can do whatever he or she wants. They can say you pay four thousand dollars a month. Now it's going to be six thousand dollars a month. And if you go, I can't pay that. It's like guess you guess what you're out. And if someone else can, they move in, and well, that no, landlord is if happy. In a market rate apartment, <coughs> the landlord has the ability to do that. Rent stabilization has some controls and has some protections for that tenant. So the tenant, on a on a one or two year basis, signs an extension, a lease extension, and that lease extension, the the increase on a year to year basis is determined by something called the rent stabilization board, but. There's also all sorts of protections that exist for that tenant. The problem is that over the years, some of those protections have been softened and have and have and have made it so that scumbag landlords take advantage of those laws as they currently stand. Now, let me be clear: I have many, many, many responsible landlords in my district. I'm glad and and lucky that one of them, like I live in a rent stabilized apartment in in, in my district, and I've lived one. Most of the in the rent stabilized apartment, most of the time that I've been living in New York, I would not be able to live. In You're a state. renter. You don't own your home. Now I'm a renter. Yeah, it's like I, I make government money, dude. Like I can't. <laughs> I can't. I have. I have. You know. I. I have very much. As a, I'm not a young man anymore. I'm 43. I have. Like, I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, you would have guessed. Or, dude, whatever, dude. I'm certainly not a millennial. Quarterback. I'm certainly not. I'm an, I'm an old grandpa. I get it. But but I do not have... But I have the issues like many, many men of color in my generation. It's like my, my savings are not... You know, my credit is okay. Uh-huh. I have zero debt, which is great. Like very little debt. I don't have like school debt, you know, and yeah, all that sort of stuff. I have school but debt. I have, but I have like my... As far as equity, like I don't own much. Like, mm. And that's just the reality of many people that... I basically lived on a rent to rent on a on a check to check basis mm-hmm. through my entire time in the in, in New York State. Like even now, as a you know, as, and I and I'm luckier than many people in my district. But this is the bottom line. So I live in a rent stabilized apartment. Rent stabilization. There's all sorts of things. There's a lot of people in my district who are responsible landlords, and I'm lucky that many of them are here. However, the laws as they currently stand, because there are so many hundreds of thousands of apartments across the state and across the city, in particular then scumbag landlords can get away with all sorts of things and they put pressure on tenants to get them out so that they can get newer paying tenants and they can just just oppress people excuse me who are just trying to live in the city and thrive in the city so we are doing there are certain things that we will do this year to strengthen rent laws and there's a package of bills that's being discussed but there's and, and, and probably there's no time to go into the details but i will tell you that many of the things that we're trying to achieve ultimately are about making sure that we protect the people who may have 
nowhere to live if these if these rent laws are not strengthened. So for our listeners here who might be interested in learning more about you, learning more about your work, how mm-hmm. can they find you online, social media, get involved in your district? Yes. So I would say they can look for New York State Senator Gustavo Rivera, right? I'm sure that they'll be able to yep. see the spelling of it, et cetera. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on, on Twitter. You can find me on, on, on the gram, although I do have to get better at Instagram, seeing my young... So I'd, I'd encourage all of our listeners to uh, get on Twitter, follow you, uh, come to some of these events, get to know the district. Senator, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.